0: We're in Matthew chapter 5. I trust you know that by now. If you're new with us, we're right at the outset of our study of the book of Matthew. Truly, the Lord only knows how long we will be in Matthew. But we've come through the Beatitudes, and now we're into the kingdom demands that are found in the second portion of Matthew chapter 5. And so if you're new with us, you can find your way there. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and we're just in the fifth chapter. Um, not unlike any other Lord's Day, um, we find this morning that there is a very pronounced strength in consecutive preaching. Uh, there is some merit to, or some value rather, to preaching verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, text by text, book by book, all the way through the scriptures. There is a number of things that that helps us with as believers Not the least of which is it really takes a load off every week that I, off of me. Um, I grew up in a home where consecutive preaching wasn't the norm. And I don't think I have the imagination to sit and try to think through what should be said next. So I'm glad that I come to the next paragraph and we just interact with it. Another one of the benefits is we can never avoid what we encounter in a particular section of scripture. We don't have the right to avoid passages of the Bible. And on the flip side of that coin, I don't have the privilege or right to stand up on my particular soapboxes every week and beat you with my particular views or my burdens. This is not about what's on my heart, though this is very much on my heart. This is not really about what your felt needs say is important for this morning. This is about coming again in the flow of thought to the Word of God and allowing it to speak directly to our hearts. Last week, we encountered one of the most uncomfortable sections in the Sermon on the Mount as Christ unfolds the guilt that comes from the heart of lust, which is in reality the heart of the adulterer. What a profound weight of guilt that left on our conscience. That Christ was concerned about the heart more than he was even the action, though the action is equally guilty before him. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. These words have been ringing in my ears for the entire week. as The Holy Spirit has constantly brought them back, and I trust he has for you as well, as we meditate on the fact that sin is much deeper than some external expression of it. That is sin. Murder is sin, and yet your angry heart towards your spouse, towards your family member, towards your friend or relative, is equally guilty before a righteous judge because it is the heart of murder. This is the law of Christ. This brings an immense weight upon us, one that drives us to the end of ourselves, makes us crushed if we are in fact regenerate. This word, this law, is the guiding direction of our lives, and yet its demands are for perfection. As we see at the end of chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect, as my Father is perfect. Perfection is the standard. And when perfection is the standard before a holy judge, and the heart is the issue at stake, then we stand condemned and in need of someone to stand in our place, or we are doomed for hell. So that is the weight of what falls on us each and every time we come back to the Sermon on the Mount, and particular when we come back to these demands upon the kingdom citizen. We've seen the character in the Beatitudes. We've seen the effect that they have on the world around them as salt and light. We've seen the standard held up in verses 17 through 20. Christ came to fulfill the law, and unless our righteousness exceeds the external righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, we stand condemned. We will never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the standard of the kingdom. And now, beginning in verse 21 and carrying us all the way through the end of the chapter, we find six, six carefully articulated, (coughs) excuse me, demands for us as kingdom citizens. The first was anger. The second one is lust. And we move thirdly today to the marriage relationship. All of these six are set apart with a clue that you are in a new one. There will be an old phrase. You have heard it said. And there will be a new message from Christ. But I say to you, on my authority, Christ says, let me interpret for you What the old testament said let me interpret the full weight of my law as messiah as king over this kingdom So it's hard for us to squirm away From what we find in matthew chapter 5 Because it calls us into account right whether it calls us to guilt before a holy standard And we recognize that we have no substitute and that we are doomed then it calls us to repentance because salvation is freely offered to you if you will believe, if you will place your faith in Christ. Or, for those of us who have been saved, who have been radically changed, it calls us again to remember the spiritual bankruptcy that marks our own heart, our desperate need for Christ, His righteousness to be stamped on our account, and for His continued grace, so that as we progress in this life, with remaining sin, we might see more and more and more of his character as revealed through his standard in our own lives. It can't wiggle out. There's no way to get out from underneath of these demands. So, Jesus, as recorded by Matthew, under the direction of the Holy Spirit last week, laid down the gauntlet concerning adultery. Jewish people were able to check off adultery off their list as long as they had not committed a physical, sexual act with someone outside of their marriage. And yet Christ says the law of Christ, the messianic law, demands much more. And the Old Testament law pointed to this fulfillment, this, this deep internal understanding The gauntlet was thrown down. And now the Lord turns our attention really in connective way. This is not a new passage this morning. This is not a new paragraph. This is a continuation of the previous passage that we studied last week. So we're going to go forward. It's almost like a continuum on the end of our study from last week. While lust brings the guilt upon the sinful heart of adultery, divorce and remarriage can also lead to the actual reality of physical adultery. This is the reality that we'll find this morning. Don't lose sight of where we are. I will try my best to keep you grounded in the context of Matthew chapter 5. Now, let's be honest about what we're about to study before we even get there. And all of you know what these two verses represent this morning. We are moving into a countercultural mode at. Layer upon layer, as we study through these paragraphs in the book of Matthew. From the very beginning, it has been a radical countercultural message of faith in one who was crucified on a tree some 2,000 years ago. It has progressed all the way through the, the kingdom character that we saw in the Beatitudes, that stands in stark contrast to the world around us, to what is promoted to you as success of a life well lived those are the opposite those characteristics are the opposite of what the kingdom characteristics represent and the kingdom characteristics will be will be blessed they will enjoy true happiness so not unlike Jesus in every other section we are going this morning to a countercultural perspective on marriage it's very specific it's very pointed it's very brief Yet it's a phenomenal opportunity for us to redirect our thinking to God's mind about the marriage covenant. Our culture takes the marriage covenant so lightly that people fill out paperwork before they even get married to talk about when they're not married anymore. We are so familiar with a prenuptial agreement that it doesn't even ring in our ears anymore. It's so common. We're so inundated with a voyeuristic mentality in our culture that we even know the day that the most famous people in our culture get divorced. And it happens with amazing repetition. You can't go to the grocery store without seeing who just split up, who just ended a three-year marriage, their fourth marriage. And Unfortunately, the truth of the matter is, folks, that that same flippant attitude towards the covenant of marriage has entered into the thinking of the church as well. And this is not outside of the bounds of the church. It's not like that's out there and we're all in here. Certainly has infiltrated your families, your thinking, my family, my thinking. Unfortunately, the church has become just as lax and indifferent to the weakness of the marriage bond before God as the world around it. Surveys tell us that there is an equal percentage of divorce within the church as there is without or outside of the church. Families are struggling day in and day out. Marriages are on the rocks. And without a biblical worldview, a kingdom demand when it comes to the marriage relationship, we will be left shipwrecked. Before a world that desperately needs a countercultural message and a countercultural life lived to back up that message. Sermon on the Mount takes us to the point of decision again this morning. Will we fall in humble obedience to the Lord of creation or will we harden our hearts in rebellion to the law of Christ? Will we harden ourselves to say, no, there has to be some other way? My situation is different. My friends or my family, their situation is different. The Bible just doesn't understand. You just don't know the facts. Or will we humble ourselves? This is Real Life 101. And I trust this morning we'll let every other opinion and thought come under the judgment of the Word of Christ. Okay? Say, wow. These verses this morning that we're going to study, these are... You start using these, that's pretty judgmental, pretty judgmental stuff. I trust that we'll always be willing and always be eager to set aside our opinions under the judgment of the word of Christ. It is the judgment. He is the judge. Therefore, we submit to him this morning. Let me begin reading in verse 27. I'm going to read all the way through verse 32 of Matthew chapter 5. You can follow along with me there. And we'll jump into verses 31 and 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Response, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord for us and for our examination this morning. Now I want to divide this into three sections. Really two just flow right out of verse 31 and 32. Verse 31 we'll look at as religious downgrade, divorce without regard. Okay? Religious downgrade. Divorce without regard. And that will be an examination of what we find in verse 31. And then we'll move, secondly, to the kingdom demand, marriage as a covenant, in verse 32. And then we'll finish with just some practical ramifications about divorce and remarriage. It's exciting at times for us to encounter portions of Scripture that maybe we've had a lot of questions about. I think it's our responsibility this morning to make sure that we think as exhaustively as we can, as conclusively as we can, about the message of Christ concerning divorce and remarriage and the covenant of marriage. So let's start with verse 31, and let's look first at what they assumed was true. Okay? So what was it that Jesus was countering? Well, verse 31 tells us that they were also being told, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay? Basic understanding here, just from the wording, is that if someone gets a divorce and there seems to be no reason why they wouldn't, then make sure that they give that divorcee a certificate with a clear representation of why they were divorced. In a culture where women had no potential for providing for their own needs, to be cast off, to be divorced without any means of saying, no, this is why I was divorced, was to leave someone floundering without any potential for provision. And so the Pharisees, being the good fellows that they are, they promoted this instruction. There should be a certificate whenever and whoever divorces his wife. This is the shortest little opening phrase in verse 31. It was also said, and there's a reason for that, because there is an untranslated word, or it is translated, but subtly translated. In the ESV, it says in verse 31, it was also said. It was also said. Also is is a little tiny two word Greek word or two letter Greek word, and it really is a continuation of what has just happened. So, really, if we want to translate just just woodenly literal, we could say and it was said. It's a further thought. It's an application out of what Jesus had just said. He just got done talking about adultery, and now he moves really naturally into this next demand of the kingdom. So the translation also should tie us back, though it it's hard for us to do that, also ties us back to what he just concluded in his teaching on lust and adultery. The context flows now to divorce and its relationship to adultery from lust and its relationship to adultery. Now, where did they come up with this concept of their... Their rules about divorce. Go back in your Old Testaments to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Torah, the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 24, and this is the most conclusive discussion though not command, but discussion about divorce that we find in the law given to Moses and to the people of Israel. Verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and then notice how many if statements there will be. If, then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her another certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, her second husband dies, who took, who took her to be his wife, then, the, then her former husband, verse 4 says, who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. This portion of Scripture is the, is the centerpiece of the Pharisees' concepts about divorce. This is the Old Testament law given. It is the only representation of clear uh, divorce issues in this portion of the Torah. Divorce was out of control in the nation of Israel. This particular issue was given, this section of Scripture was given to put guardrails on divorce. Excuse me. It was not given as uh, a command from Moses to the people to divorce women, to divorce wives. Rather, it was a concession because of the hardness of their hearts and the 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 vast spreading of divorce for any and all reason. Now Moses puts guardrails on this and says, "No, there are issues at stake." The Pharisees had minimized the demands of the old testament concerning the covenant of marriage so much so that one particular side of the pharisees understanding of divorce was that a woman could be divorced by her husband and understand that in their culture that was the only way divorce happened there was no women's rights women didn't have the opportunity to divorce their husband so When we read this here, that's why we only have one side of the coin. Yet in our culture, women are given that opportunity, and so we can take this on either side. But, be that as it may, there were two groups of thought in the Pharisaical perspective on divorce. One was kind of the tight view of divorce, and that was that it had to be something serious before you divorced your wife. I mean, It had to be something, the indecency that you read in Deuteronomy 24 has to be really something serious some character flaw, some issue. It could extend out to some infidelity in the marriage relationship. It wouldn't have extended to adultery because adultery was punishable by death in the Old Testament. The adulteress or the adulterer would be stoned. But the indecency had to be something serious. There was another side of the Pharisaical coin that was interacting with the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to, that basically you could divorce for any and all reasons. So much so that the historian Josephus tells us that divorce certificates were being written up based on a meal being burned. Yeah. Or based on the fact that the husband, his eyes had started to wander to more attractive women. Therefore, that was some fault of his wife, and he could divorce her for that with the full blessing of the religious leaders in his community. This is no shock. Um, I don't think they have uh, an equivalent in the Hebrew language for irreconcilable differences, okay? But that's what we're talking about. could be anything and everything. And so divorce had become so rampant, and the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 had become so loose and so out of control that now Jesus addresses this misunderstanding, this misrepresentation and misinterpretation, and he gives clarity to the messianic kingdom demand for marriage. And understand clearly that Jesus did not side with either side of the Pharisees' interpretation. He said both missed the point, as in all of these demands. You missed the point of the law. Matthew chapter 19, we find the fullest treatment of these questions about divorce with our Lord Jesus. Pharisees come to him, and they test him in verse 3. They ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That would have been the group that believed that it didn't matter why you got a divorce, so they're wanting him to justify their particular interpretation. Jesus says to them, instead of a yes or no answer, he answers back with a question. Here's his question. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So Jesus answers back with a question to their question. Is it okay for any reason to divorce your wife? Just any Any old reason. And Jesus answers back, have you actually read the scriptures? You can imagine the sting of what he's asking them. These are the religious leaders. These are the ones who held the scrolls. Yet Jesus confronts both of these perspectives as missing the full weight of what was demanded by the law, both in the Old Testament and now in the Messianic law of Christ as delivered through the Sermon on the Mount. So we've seen the flippant approach to divorce, and this is not uncommon to us, the exact same approach that we see today in our world. that marriage and divorce are seemingly insignificant, though they cause some pain and some disruption to our lives. We just move on with life. And Jesus says it's not about when can I get a divorce, when is divorce okay?" You're missing the point of what was there in the Old Testament, and I now reiterate to you with the authority, Jesus says, that the issue is about the covenant of marriage and God's perspective on marriage. Therefore, the cultural downgrade, the religious downgrade of divorce without regard leads us to the kingdom demand as marriage as a covenant. But I say to you, Jesus says in verse 32, Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. says, you're missing the point. There's so much more at stake with your marriage. Divorce, don't miss this, folks. Divorce causes adultery because it is an illegitimate legal annulment of a God-focused promise so integrated in our culture with the thought of marriage as a legal a legal agreement it's all about the court it's about the justice of the peace it's about the paperwork it's about making sure that when you're done we sign the right papers because if we don't you ain't married and then you don't get tax breaks okay marriage is all about the law it's all about the legal the legal uh, uh perspective on us as a married couple and yet biblically The woman and the man coming together to be married is a covenant before God. And God takes that very seriously. So seriously that you are an aid, you are a cause to sin and the sin of adultery if, in fact, you divorce your wife for any reason, with one exception, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Divorce, illegitimate divorce, throws two married individuals two people who have covenanted before God, it throws them into the potential for sexual union with someone other than their covenant spouse before God. In other words, when there is illegitimate divorce and that divorcee remarries, the sexual relationship between the new husband and the wife is the same as sleeping with another man's wife because that covenant has never been annulled before God. The emphasis here from our Lord Jesus is on the high view of marriage that heaven has. Heaven views your covenant with your wife seriously. It's eternal bond of marriage until death do us part means something to God. He heard that. And he expects you to live that out. In fact, if we just keep our thumb where we are, and maybe I'll just read this to you, but Jesus further articulates this with a little more detail back in Matthew chapter 19, and we're obviously going to get there eventually. But Matthew chapter 19, and verse 4, he asks them the question, have you, not, have you not understood and not read the scriptures? And verse 6 says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate or put asunder, if you are married with a... King James Version, marriage manual for your pastor. Okay? Let no man put asunder. That comes from this text. And this text is speaking about divorce. Because God cares about the covenant of one flesh in marriage. What he has joined in his creative plan, beginning with Adam and Eve, he says let no man set that aside. God hates divorce Malachi tells us Now back in Matthew chapter 5 we do find one interesting phrase that you all are very aware of Everyone who divorces his wife comma except on the ground of sexual immorality comma makes her commit adultery This is what is known as the exception clause Why is it that we find it? What is it that it intends for us? What can we understand from this little clause? The only grounds for divorce that will not lead to adultery on the part of those involved is sexual immorality. Fornication. This is the broadest word. This is porneia. We obviously use that word as a derivative for our own language. Porneia is the broadest Greek term for Sexual sin, it means anything that is outside the bounds of the marriage union, the one flesh sexual relationship of a husband and wife, anything that's outside of that falls into this category of sexual immorality. Jesus is pretty clear with this. Again, in Matthew 19:9, 9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Except for sexual immorality. Far from flinging the doors wide open for divorce within the kingdom, Christ slams it shut for anything other than the covenant breaking sin of sexual immorality. In the Old Testament, at the point of adultery, the marriage was over. Why? Because the one who had committed adultery was no longer alive if they were living in obedience. The New Testament no longer requires, under the law of Christ, that adultery be punished by death, and in His grace, they are allowed to live. And yet, adultery, fornication, sexual immorality, breaks the covenant of marriage. Therefore, the legal document of divorce is allowable. This is a very narrow, narrow window Fornication is a breaking of the covenant. Therefore, legal divorce is only allowable for the Christian and for the innocent party when the other has committed adultery, sexual immorality, outside of the bounds of marriage. This is important for us to understand. It has some real ramifications that we're going to talk about in just a moment. But let's be clear. This is the word of Jesus Christ. This must be our understanding of the marriage relationship. We must place the marriage relationship on the same level that our Heavenly Father places it and that our Messiah places it before us as part of His kingdom demand. Our culture screams the opposite of what these verses scream to you. These verses say no matter how hard it gets, no matter how annoying he or she becomes, no matter how much the physical body changes in the course of marriage, no matter how many meals are burned, no matter what happens, if it is not a breaking of the covenant union, then it must be set aside and the marriage must go forward. Why? Because God created marriage. He created the one flesh union. It was his idea. You covenanted before him, and you do not have the authority to break that covenant. And if you do, you are opening the door wide open to causing adultery to take place. We could use a really steady dose of stick to when it comes to marriage in our culture. Marriage is not just God's idea. God has great plans for the marriage relationship we've been looking at this on sunday evenings in ephesians chapter 5 the very end of this section that's so important to us verse 22 begins talking about the wives and the relationship and it goes all the way through speaking about the husbands verse 31 says therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh that's uh genesis two twenty-four. The mystery is profound. A biblical mystery is something that was not revealed in the Old Testament that now is revealed in the New. So here's a mystery. When Genesis 2.24 said that, that men and women would become one flesh and there would be a marriage relationship, what wasn't revealed is what is here revealed. Verse 32, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, the picture of the marriage relationship, the covenant between a man and a woman and the unity of one flesh for a lifetime, is a living illustration of the gospel itself. This was not revealed in God's plan in the book of Genesis, but it is revealed in, in, in Ephesians that God intends for the marriage covenant to be an opportunity to testify about the goodness of God in making a covenant with sinful people, Christ and His bride, His church. So we need to think biblically about our marriages. This was something that was going on all through the New Church, the early days of the New Testament. The church at Corinth was going through issues. People were being saved, and in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, some were being saved, and their spouses were not coming to faith in Christ. So these new believers said, "Well, I can't be, I can't be in union with this unbeliever. I need to end this relationship." Paul said, "No." First Corinthians chapter seven. Be careful how you think. Think with God's mind when it comes to your marriage. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord... That if any brother, that is, this is new information from Paul, this is not something he's recounting, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy, he is sanctified, he is held back from his sinfulness because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife the same because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they also are sanctified because of the influence of one believing spouse. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? God may, in fact, use you to bring them to the place of salvation. So God has a high perspective, a high view of the marriage covenant. And our Lord Jesus places this high view of the marriage covenant on us as his kingdom citizens flowing from the instruction about adultery from the heart and physically he now moves to this illustration this particular case study of divorce and remarriage so this is the clear teaching of our lord heart and physical adultery both find guilt before his holy standard Okay? That's the religious downgrade, was just a flippant view of marriage, not unlike our culture. The kingdom demand was marriage as a covenant before God, not as a legal document. And that only that one exception, there is only one exception in Scripture that makes divorce allowable. You'll never find a command to divorce. There is but one allowable circumstance, and that is the breaching of that covenant, the breaking of that covenant through sexual immorality. Thirdly, then, let's look just briefly in conclusion to the present ramifications on our lives and divorce and remarriage, even as a church. Let me just give you some thoughts here on divorce and remarriage. Only divorce on the basis of fornication is allowable, though no divorce is desirable or ever commanded. Okay? One commentator wisely said that when people come to him and say, I'd like to talk to you about divorce, he says we can only talk about that after we've talked about two other things. The two other things are marriage and reconciliation. So we need to talk about two things before we ever get to your subject of whether or not I can get a divorce. Scripture is quite clear that there is great weight placed upon the covenant and there is great glory in reconciliation between sinful people. It's never desirable. It's never commanded of us. And yet it is allowable in the case of sexual immorality. Now that has some ramifications for us, doesn't it? Divorce on the basis of fornication is tragic, but it is not sin. It is not sin. For someone to divorce their unfaithful spouse. It's not sin. Divorce on the basis of fornication is not cause for discipline within the local assembly. To go against the clear instruction of Scripture, to divorce for anything except sexual immorality, or to marry one who has been divorced for anything except sexual immorality, and therefore to commit adultery. To have a sexual union with another man's wife or husband, or another woman's husband, that is cause for discipline within the church because that is clear rebellion against what is spoken clearly to us in the word of God. But divorce on the basis of sexual morality is not cause for discipline within the local assembly. Marriage is the right of those divorced under the exception clause, for the covenant has been broken by the guilty party. What is understood here is, yes, there is an exception, and yes, there can be remarriage because the covenant is broken. It is annulled by the sexual immorality. Therefore, the remarriage will not constitute adultery. Marriage is a promise before God himself. Therefore, the Messiah places a high demand on this union. And the sanctity of marriage is the point of this passage. Okay? If you walk away from this thinking, i got some more information about divorce in the Bible, then we've missed the point again. The point is, marriage matters. And it matters a lot. It has eternal consequences before God. Because to dissolve a marriage union, to dissolve a covenant legally or any other way, is to set aside what God has clearly created as that eternal union between a husband and wife until death. Kingdom righteousness extends beyond your personal life, your lust, into the actual flesh, one flesh relationship with your spouse. Be foolish then in conclusion not for us to take a moment and think about the great realities of forgiveness and reconciliation. It should be the desire of all who are married because of what it means to be married to pursue at all cost forgiveness and reconciliation. There should be great desire for that covenant not to be broken. Not just for the disaster that it has, disastrous effects that it has on those in that family, but there should be a pursuit of reconciliation and of forgiveness so that the testimony of what marriage was created to show continues on let me end with this encouragement to you if you find yourself like i have in these last several paragraphs anger lust if you find yourself pointed out in this discussion of divorce let me remind you that grace is offered to you and the grace that is found in christ is sufficient Right? It's sufficient. His grace covers these sins. His substitution on the cross paid for those who would commit these sins. We don't have a problem with anger as much saying, yep, nobody ever saw it or they didn't see it very much and God covered that. But when it comes to a life-changing decision that is external, a divorce that is illegitimate, and a remarriage that is illegitimate, We feel exposed. We feel that there could never be reconciliation before God. And yet the cross has covered these sins. But for the kingdom citizen, the kingdom citizen must live with the expectation and with the worldview that is articulated by his king. Perfect righteousness is demanded. Therefore, a perfect substitute is needed. 2 Corinthians 5:21 He made him who knew no sin he was never divorced he never committed adultery he never lusted to be sin he died as if he had done all of those to their fullest why so that we those who have been angry who have murdered in our hearts who have committed adultery in our hearts or physically and those who have divorced illegitimately and caused divorce to be or caused adultery to be widespread might be counted righteous before a holy god this is the law of christ it's the law of the kingdom and it will be either your delight or it will be the standard by which you will be damned before the judgment of jesus christ i trust that as we study these various standards these demands these laws laid down for our accountability that we will not be drawn to despair, but only drawn to despair to the place where we again see clearly the glory of the cross. We see the forgiveness again in all of its weight. We see it again because we know again, we've been made aware one more time of who we truly are. We're so indebted and so grateful that God has crushed us under the weight of our sin allowed us to see ourselves for who we are, and brought us to poverty in spirit, which then made us the inheritance of the kingdom. What a blessing. What a triumph we have in Christ, who leads us in obedience, who leads us in submission to the will of the Father, and who supplies the grace needed to live out these kingdom demands on a daily basis. May we progress this week, not for our own glory, not for our own merit, but for the glory of God as we exalt the person of Jesus Christ.